Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon and Dale Earnhardt phone. Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we go. January 17th, 2022, people. I hope everybody is doing well. I hope everybody had a great, long holiday weekend. And if you're listening here on MLK Day, hope everybody is having a great MLK Day. Welcome to the MLK Day edition of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. So much to get into, so much to talk about, plus a fun guest. So let's get into it. We are going to obviously open with what I believe is the biggest ongoing story in college football that remains, Jim Harbaugh. To quote Jim Harbaugh, what's your deal? Uh, it wasn't Jim Harbaugh that said it, but Pete Carroll once asked Jim Harbaugh, what's your deal? What is Jim Harbaugh's deal? I will explain to you why I am starting to think that we are getting closer and closer to a decision on Jim Harbaugh, his future, and why I actually believe that Michigan is actually in a pretty good spot right now. Some stuff happened over the weekend that I do think matters. We will talk about that. From there, two big basketball topics that I want to get to. One, Kentucky smacks down Tennessee, and I had a thought on Kentucky that I think is really interesting that you'll enjoy, how the fans, yes, the fans of Kentucky basketball have put them in this position where they are once again back atop the sport. I believe they are one of the top five to ten teams in the country, and it's thanks to the fans, it's thanks to something that happened, a unique perspective on Kentucky basketball, not nearly as positive a perspective across the street, across the state in, Le- in Louisville, where Louisville loses to Pitt. Chris Mack admits he has no idea how to motivate his team. And I do wonder if we're starting to see the beginning of the end of the Chris Mack and Mack era. And we will wrap with this. Really fun interview. Jim Mora, new UConn football head coach. And a couple notes before we get to uh, the, the meat of the show. But one, first of all, not really sure why. The audio on my end did not come out great. Now, Coach Moore is great. Talks about coming to UConn, uh, uh, recruiting, talking about why he loves the state of Connecticut, all that good stuff. The audio on my end, not really sure why it doesn't sound great, but you'll hear Coach Moore loud and clear. And two, what I was going to say is, I don't think you have to be a UConn fan to enjoy the interview with Jim Mora. Really fun guy, really engaging guy. And I think you'll learn a little bit about UConn football, which I did talk about, of course, when the job opened up and when Jim Mora was hired. So Jim Mora, new UConn football head coach, joins the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast here at the end of the show. But with that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And as far as college football is concerned, 
And obviously the last four, four and a half months, we've talked almost nothing but college football. I think there are really two big topics that we'll get a resolution on in the coming days. The first is Caleb Williams, and it's been like weirdly quiet on Caleb Williams, and I could come on here and give you 10, 12 minutes on why I think this is going to happen or that's going to happen or what does this mean. I think we just got to wait on Caleb Williams and see if anything becomes official in the coming days. My hunch is that he's still going to end up at USC, but we will continue that conversation another time, especially if he does commit at some point here in the near future. But the other big topic is, of course, Jim Harbaugh's future. And about 10, 12 days ago, a little under two weeks ago, we first heard the rumblings that when these NFL head coaching jobs opened, that Jim, Jim uh, Harbaugh could very well be a candidate at some of these jobs. Well, last week comes, a bunch of jobs open. Jim Harbaugh is still, by technicality, the Michigan head coach, but it's kind of this weird thing where he, we know he's interviewing, so what's going on? So let's break it down, let's talk about it. And when I look at the Jim Harbaugh thing, I think one of two things can be happening. One, I do think there could be one job that he is definitively waiting for that just happened to just open up, but also more realistically, I think there was some stuff that I saw this weekend that makes me believe that Jim Harbaugh will be back as Michigan's head coach. So let's get into it and let's talk about it. And when we talk about Harbaugh kind of in the bigger picture, even going back to that initial Bruce Feldman report about seven, eight, nine, I think it was about 10, 12 days ago now, I think it was almost two full weeks at this point. Uh, if you go back to that report, there were two jobs that were immediately linked to Jim Harbaugh. And in terms of the possibilities of why he might be leaving, where he could be going, everything was initially tied to those two jobs. The first one was the Chicago Bears. Well, the Chicago Bears opened up last Monday. They fire Matt Nagy. And right now, there seems to be no indication that the Chicago Bears are actually interested in hiring Jim Harbaugh. For people who haven't been following that search closely, I know any Michigan fan listening has been, but Bill Polian, the former NFL executive, former ESPN uh, analyst, has been running that search on behalf of the Chicago Bears. Don't know exactly what his affiliation is, but the Bears have been very public about who they've been interviewing, and it does not appear as though Jim Harbaugh is a candidate for that job, or at least publicly they're not saying that he is, because they've gone through a bunch of candidates and a bunch of interviews, and he hasn't been one of them. They have interviewed Brian Flores, the former uh, Miami Dolphins head coach, Brian Dable, the current Buffalo Bills offensive coordinator. Many of you will remember him. He was Alabama's offensive coordinator for one year, I believe the year after Lane Kiffin left. And there's been a couple guys here and there, but ultimately Harbaugh was linked to two jobs initially, and the first one doesn't seem to have very much interest in him. Doesn't make Jim Harbaugh a bad coach, doesn't make the Bears wrong or right, but it just seems like while that was an initial report, it doesn't seem as though the interest is as mutual as it was initially reported. Now that doesn't mean come Monday afternoon as you guys listen to this show, there can't be a report that Harbaugh's interviewing or he's talking to him or whatever. But at the same time, that job's been open a week. They've interviewed several candidates. Harbaugh isn't one. And so to me, it's becoming incre increasingly less likely that there is actually real interest between Harbaugh and the Bears. Now, here is where it is interesting. And here is where I think if you're a Michigan fan worried about losing Jim Harbaugh, this is where I would start to get worried. Because there is another job that he was initially linked to that was not really open until about 8 p.m. Eastern on Saturday and that's the Las Vegas Raiders. Initially, that report, Bruce Feldman, as you remember, it was the Bears and it was the Raiders. Well, then what happens? 
The Raiders play Sunday night football against the Los, Los Angeles Chargers. Brandon Staley calls a timeout when he should have called a timeout. The Raiders win. They go to the playoffs. And all of a sudden, that whole interview process backtracked. And so if Jim Harbaugh is really an NFL candidate, and more specifically, if he's interested in the Raiders and the Raiders are interested in him, then it kind of makes sense that it has been quiet over the last four, five, six days, right? Raiders make the playoffs. Raiders have an interim head coach. Raiders are now officially out of the playoffs. All indications are that they are not retaining that interim head coach. And if they're not retaining that interim head coach, then it only makes sense that they probably start the interview process over the next two, three, four days. Now, yes, in theory, could they have been interviewing people on the side and while the team was preparing for the playoffs? Absolutely. But I'll tell you a couple things. One, as best I can tell, there's no reports that the Raiders have actually interviewed anybody for that coaching job. And two, Mark Davis doesn't strike me as somebody that's super clandestine that can sneak into and out of places, interview a bunch of candidates, and uh, you know, and 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 be be trying to find his new head coach while his team is currently playing. And so because of it, that is where if I was a Michigan fan, I would be worried, right? Because the job uh, two weeks ago the report comes out. Last week a bunch of jobs open up. Harbaugh doesn't seem to really be linked to any of them. But if he is going to leave, it only makes sense that one of the jobs that he was linked to had not opened up. It is now opened up. And if there is mutual interest between the Raiders and Jim Harbaugh, then I think that information will come out in the coming days. It's worth noting, of course, with the NFL hiring process, you have to go through multiple interviews. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but there's the Rooney rule. So I don't know necessarily that because the Raiders lost on Saturday, it means by Monday we'll know for sure or Tuesday we'll know for sure if Jim Harbaugh is going to get that job. But I do think over the next probably 48 to 72 hours, we'll know if he's at least a candidate. But at the same time, I would also say this. The longer this goes on, as weird as it sounds, uh, I think it makes it more likely that Jim Harbaugh returns to Michigan. And what I would also say is, if you paid attention to the tea leaves, if you paid attention to what happened this weekend, including one very interesting thing that happened on Saturday night, you might start to realize, I think as the days go on, it is becoming increasingly more likely that Jim Harbaugh will return to Michigan. Now it will come with some changes, and he'll probably get a contract raised to make him once again among the highest paid coaches in, in college football. But I think it's becoming increasingly more likely that he returns to Michigan. And when I was breaking it down, when I was thinking about it, there's three reasons why. And let me start with the most obvious reason why I believe it's likely that Jim Harbaugh returns to Michigan. And that reason is pretty straightforward. It's because there's only 32 of these jobs on the planet, right? And look, you don't have to be uh, an NFL insider, a college football insider. You don't have to cover Michigan to know this. But I was talking to somebody a, a few days ago who's worked in the NFL for a really long time, a buddy of mine, and we're kind of talking, and we're like, oh, you think this is really? And he goes, look, man, I'm not saying it will happen or it won't happen. He goes, but there's only 32 of these jobs. And so when you start to really break it down at its most basic level, there's only 32 of these jobs. Only eight of them are open. And a lot of them don't really make sense, right? And so in terms of why Jim Harbaugh is actually going to return to Michigan, some of it is pretty simple. One, he has to be offered one of these jobs. And two, it has to be a job that he's willing to be willing to accept. And so when you start breaking it down, first of all, 24 of the jobs are not available. I would suspect that they won't become available. I don't think the Buffalo Bills or the New England Patriots or the Los Angeles Rams or, uh, you know, whoever, uh, the, the Tampa Bay Bucks are about to become available anytime soon. Uh, but of the eight jobs, some of them don't make sense for Harbaugh and some of them 
don't make sense for Harbaugh to accept. Just think about it, right? First of all, Miami Dolphins. We know that that job's open. We know they fired Brian Flores. Well, their owner, who's a Michigan alum, is on the record saying, uh, yeah, I'm not going to be the guy that takes Jim Harbaugh away from Michigan. Cross that one off the list. Chicago Bears. We just talked about him. Interview process being run by Bill Polian. Bill Polian doesn't seem to have much interest in Jim Harbaugh. Probably go ahead and cross that one off the list. Uh, beyond that, just think about some of the other jobs that are available. The Jacksonville Jaguars job are available. Not trying to claim that I know what Shad Khan, the owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars, plans on doing with that job. But after he just uh, hired a high profile, uh, you know, uh, very, um, you know, what's the right word? Big personality college football coach in the previous coaching cycle, guy named Urban Meyer. I don't get the sense that he's in a rush to do the same. And I know Harbaugh has the NFL background. He played, he coached, whatever. But I'm not saying, what I'm saying is that job doesn't seem to make sense for Jim Harbaugh. It doesn't seem to make sense for them to be interested in Jim Harbaugh. What I would also say is on top of that, there's the other perspective as well. Some of these jobs don't make sense for Jim Harbaugh to actually accept and leave Michigan. And I do understand at its most basic level, Harbaugh's a competitor. Harbaugh went to uh, the San Francisco 49ers in a lockout year and still got them to the NFC Championship game. And I do understand that, again, this is a guy that probably thinks in his head, I've won everywhere I've gone. Everywhere I've gone has had immediate success. And I can do that if I take any of these jobs. But at the same time, does it really make sense for Jim Harbaugh to take, say, the Houston Texans job? Okay, so you're going to an organization that's a complete dumpster fire. You're going to an organization that if you can't convince Deshaun Watson to return is going to be going through a complete rebuild. Jim Harbaugh has no affiliation with Deshaun Watson, so he's not going to be the guy to get Deshaun Watson to return. That's assuming that all of his legal situations get settled. And so again, that's another job that simply doesn't make sense for Jim Harbaugh. So when you start going down the list of every single job, first of all, 24 of them aren't available as we speak. Uh, eight of them are, but there's really only two or three that make sense, one of them being the Raiders, which we already talked about. Beyond that, what I would say in terms of why I actually think he'll return, and by the way, I should say, there's only two or three that make sense. Somebody has to offer Jim Harbaugh that job, and Jim Harbaugh has to accept. Beyond that, what I would also say is worth noting, second reason I think Harbaugh's probably likely to return to Michigan, he's not, he's not acting like a man that's planning on leaving. Not sure how closely you play, paid attention, but you know what Jim Harbaugh did this weekend? Jim Harbaugh just, just uh, hired a new defensive line coach. Didn't have a defensive line coach, guy left for another job. Harbaugh hired a guy this weekend. Not saying it means anything, but at the same time, you don't think that guy went through the ringer with Jim Harbaugh saying, before I take this job, before I move my family, before I quit the job that I have, you're 100% positive you're going to be at Michigan, right? At the same time, if you're Jim Harbaugh and you're trying to sneak your, your way out the side door at Michigan and get an NFL head coaching job, you think you're worried about the defensive line coach? Now, at the same time, I could see the argument, well, until I officially have a job, I have to focus on this one. I get that, but it doesn't make sense. Also worth noting, Harbaugh was spotted with recruits on campus this weekend at a Michigan hockey game. Again, just saying, not really acting like a guy that plans on leaving Michigan anytime soon. Finally, what I would lastly say is this. The third reason that I think it is actually more realistic even now than, say, 24 to 48 hours ago that Harbaugh returns, did you see what happened over the weekend? Did you see what happened that I tweeted about? That if you listen to this Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, this is like a crazy story, okay? On Saturday, Michigan's school president, a man named Mark Schlissel, got fired by the University of Michigan. 
if you listen to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, you know that name. And you're probably sitting there thinking, dude, I have heard Torres talk about Mark Schlissel. Who is Mark Schlissel? Why do I know that name? Oh, I know who he is. He was the school president pushing harder than anyone a year ago to cancel Big Ten football in the fall of 2020. Remember, I used to talk about all those nerdy school presidents with their tweed jackets on their elbows trying to cancel football? He was the number one tweed jacket loser. Well, guess what? Just got fired for having an inappropriate sexual relationship with one of his insubordinates. Hmm. First of all, let me just say this. Let me get on a side tangent unrelated to Jim Harbaugh. This goes to what I always say all the time. If you listen to me, if you follow me on Twitter, what do I always tell you? It's always the guys and girls that tell all the rest of us how to live their lives that have the most skeletons in their closet, right? I come on this show all the time. I tell you my opinion. I tell you this. I tell you that. Why we should play games. Why we should do... I never tell you how you should feel, though. I never project what I believe is best for everyone. Like, I I live my life. I live in my bubble. I do what's best for me. I don't project it on everybody else. But it's the losers like this guy telling us, we got to cancel the season. Can't play the season. It's unsafe. You know what's unsafe? Having a relationship with an insubordinate guy. Well, he's fired. Here's why it's important as it pertains to Harbaugh. First of all, I cannot believe this happened. It's incredible. You know who? Okay. Let me, let me even backtrack because I'm all fired up about Tweed Jackets now. I just said it a minute ago. Schlissel, more than anybody, publicly pushed to get college football canceled in the Big Ten. And part of it, it was he had some kind of, uh, you know, background in infectious disease and it's not safe and it's this and it's that and it's whatever. At the same time, you know who very publicly fought Mark Schlissel on the topic? Jim Harbaugh. And I remember talking about it on this show because I said, look, You can make fun of Jim Harbaugh. At the time, he had never beaten Ohio State. At the time, whatever. But what I said about Jim Harbaugh was this. You can criticize him, but if you love college football, he's your ally because he is publicly fighting his school president who is publicly saying it is not safe to play football. Jim Harbaugh was doing that publicly. Remember, I'll never forget this. First weekend of the season, everybody's playing college football in the SEC, ACC, Big 12, Independence, Notre Dame played that opening weekend. You know what Michigan was doing? Their players were having a march on campus. You know who joined them? Jim Harbaugh. Remember when Jim Harbaugh was asked about playing football? He said, we could be ready in two weeks. You tell us when, where, and who will be ready to play. And so I bring all this up because it has been very public that Harbaugh and Schlissel, how about Schlissel, our boy Schlissel, did not see eye to eye. Well, guess what? That guy's gone. And so the good news if you're a Michigan fan, Harbaugh and Schlissel were publicly public enemies and Harbaugh and the AD, Ward Manuel, get along pretty well. And so I'm not saying it's a be-all, end-all. But it always does help when you can argue, look, does Har- you know, who really runs the university? Is it the football coach? Is it the AD? Is it this? Is it that? Is it the school president? But when the school president isn't on your side and you're publicly beefing with him, and all of a sudden, that guy's gone, it can't be anything but a good thing. As I was just saying, Jim Harbaugh does get along well with his AD Ward manual. And so if I'm looking at this situation right now, what I'm telling you is this, is I think the combination of the fact that there just aren't a lot of jobs that make sense for Harbaugh at this point, he's not acting like a guy that's ready to leave, and the fact that his school president just got booted for having an inappropriate relationship with a subordinate, I'm just telling you, everything to me is lining up for Harbaugh to return. Now, it is worth noting, again, keep an eye on that Raiders job. 
Who is Mark Davis interviewing? How aggressive is he interviewing? Um, is he going for the biggest name? Is he going for the right fit? Is he going to retain the interim head coach? That's the one to keep an eye on because, again, I just don't think the Chicago Bears seem to be all that interested. The Dolphins are out. The Jags don't make a ton of sense. I, I, I don't buy the Texans. I don't really buy the Broncos. Maybe the Giants, New York, big market. But what I'm saying is there aren't a lot of jobs that make sense for Jim Harbaugh. And again, somebody has to offer him and he has to accept it. So keep an eye on Harbaugh because that is where we're at. All right. Whew. I got me fired up. We're talking about nerds. We're talking about tweed jackets. We're talking about Schlissel. How about our boy Schlissel? I'm telling you, man. I am telling you. I'm telling you. The people that project their stuff on us the most, always the guys and girls that have the most skeletons in their closet. Mark Schlissel, look him up, got fired at Michigan, tried to cancel Big Ten football. He just got canceled for having a relationship with an insubordinate. This is what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back, and I want to talk a little college hoops. Because, as I said, I thought there were two mega stories from this weekend. The first one, Kentucky destroys Tennessee. That's the interesting part, but what's more interesting is I believe there is somebody that we have to give credit to Kentucky for for their success this season. It's not John Calipari. It's not the players. On the flip side, I do want to talk a little bit about Louisville. They lost to Pitt. Uh, they're not playing very well. Chris Mack basically admitted he has absolutely no idea how to motivate this team. Chris Mack, things aren't looking too good for that guy. So here's the deal. This is what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back, and we'll talk a little college hoops, and then we will get to my new buddy, Jim Mora, new UConn football coach. We'll be right back to talk some college hoops, though. All right, everybody, I'm back. Good to be back, good to be back. Let's switch gears, let's talk a little college hoops because I will say just in general, uh, I do think it was a little bit of a slower weekend in college basketball. I think college basketball in general kind of gets, hey, these two middle Saturdays in January, the NFL is gonna own this. Let's not put a ton of marquee games late in the day. Let's get a few games in early. Let's get out of there. We're not beating the NFL head to head and let's own late January, early February, March and April. So there weren't a ton of games, and I don't think there was a ton of like huge mega headlines to come out of Saturday, but I do think there were two really important ones, both ironically coming from the state of Kentucky, and let's talk about the two of them, uh, one really positive, one really negative, then we'll wrap on some of the other headlines from the weekend, including that Arkansas upset at LSU without Coach Muss, who's without, you know, he's out for, with, with shoulder surgery, uh, we'll talk a little bit about Kansas, who played really, really well, on and on and on. But like I said, I thought there were two marquee stories that came out of Saturday, college basketball, both from the state of Kentucky, one positive, one negative. And since I'm a glasses half full guy, let's start with the positive. Positive vibes only on this show until we talk about Louisville five minutes from now. But the positive is I don't think there was a single more positive the entire weekend in college basketball, unless you're a UT fan, than what happened at Rupp Arena. Kentucky comes in as a four and a half point favorite against the Tennessee Volunteers. Final score, 107-79. Kentucky puts that butt whooping on Tennessee. The Tennessee Volunteers, the only thing Volunteers were, the only thing Tennessee was volunteering for was a butt whooping on Saturday. It was really bad. And what I would say is a couple things. Look, first of all, I'm poking at Tennessee. What I would say is Tennessee, there was nothing you could do. I mean, Kentucky spent part of this game, most of this game, shooting around 80% from the field. They could not miss. And I do understand that in the big picture, there is not probably not going to be another team that shoots that well over the course of this entire season than Kentucky did for about a 30, 32-minute stretch on Saturday. 
And the Tennessee fans, you just got to lick your wounds, get out of Rupp, and get home because there is nothing you could do. Kentucky was just absolutely awesome on Saturday. What I would also say, though, is I do think that this game in many ways confirmed what I've been saying for a few weeks. And what I've been saying for a few weeks is this, is that I can never remember. I've been kind of in this media space basically since John Calipari got to Kentucky uh, early, you know, 2009, 2010, whatever. I've been in this media space, and this year is the first time that I believe that Kentucky entered the month of January underrated underappreciated nationally, under-talked about nationally, and I think that's continued over the last few weeks. And now part of the reason that Kentucky remains underrated, underappreciated, they really didn't have that signature win. And I get it, right? Like, like you know, y- y- we can't put them up there with Auburn, which is 9-1 in quad one games. We can't put them up there with Arizona, which won at Illinois. We can't put them up there with Duke, which has two or three good wins, until they start racking up those marquee wins. And they're certainly going to have those marquee opportunities over the next few weeks, starting Starting with Tennessee on Saturday, they play at Auburn next weekend. They play Kansas in the ACC Big Twelve Challenge, or the SEC Big Twelve Challenge, in a few weeks. They're going to play LSU. They're going to play Arkansas. They're going to play Alabama, and so they're going to have plenty of opportunities to show everyone just how good they are. I would say I also think part of the reason that people think they're they're not people don't understand how good they are is because they don't have that marquee win. So it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. Well, they're not very good because they don't have a marquee win. Well, actually, they are really good. They just don't have the marquee win to back it up. And so I think Saturday helped prove that this Kentucky team's probably better than I think a lot of people realize. And I said it on Twitter and I stand by it on Saturday afternoon. This is, the mo- this is the first time in my career that Kentucky in the John Calipari era is underrated coming into January, and I would also say they were ranked number 18 in the most recent AP poll, and if there are 17 teams in college basketball better than the team that put up 107 on Tennessee on Saturday, uh, then this is the best season in the history of college basketball. Bottom line is there aren't 17 better teams, and when you start to talk about teams that down the stretch could be peaking in March, could have the opportunity to be playing in New Orleans for a national championship, I think Kentucky's right up there with anybody, whether it's Arizona, Auburn, Duke, whomever. There's a lot of teams at the top of college basketball this year. I don't believe there's one or two great ones. I do think that Kentucky is one of the 10, 12, 15 that could be playing for a title come early April. With that said, though, I kind of want to talk about this in the bigger picture because I did think of something very interesting as I was watching that Kentucky game on Saturday, and it really dates back to last year. And I don't want to overdo it. I don't want to go back through everything that went wrong last season at Kentucky. But we all remember that Kentucky was historically bad last year. We all remember that we were referencing the Basil Hayden era at Kentucky uh, back in the 19-teens as it w- last year was the worst season in Kentucky basketball history since the Basil Hayden era of the 19-teens as Kentucky finished 9-16 and overall. So why do I bring it up? It is because I had a thought on Saturday. I think it's unique. I think it's interesting. I don't think anybody else is talking about it, and I think it's this is that there are so many times in college basketball, in college football, in college sports in general, where folks in the media kind of just sit back and say, uh, you know, uh, those crazy college sports fans, those crazy college football fans, those crazy college basketball fans, they're crazy. They don't know what's going on. They're out of touch. They're delusional. College sports fans get painted in a certain picture as crazy, delusional, unrealistic, whatever. And I do think there is a negative connotation to that idea. And I do think that at times, that connotation is correct. What I don't think people talk enough about, though, is this. 
is the idea that the craziness of college sports fans sometimes has a positive effect. And I think Kentucky basketball is the example of a positive because this time last year into February, into March, Kentucky fans drew a line in the sand. Kentucky fans said, this is not good enough. This is not acceptable for one of the best programs in the history of college basketball. And John Calipari, you better figure it out because if you don't figure it out, you ain't going to be the head coach here very much longer. And so I bring it up to say that we only talk about the negative effects of fans on college sports, but I actually think this is a positive because as Kentucky enters the second half of the year, as I believe one of the most underrated teams in the country and good enough to win a national championship, I think it is a direct reflection of the pressure that these Kentucky fans put on John Calipari last offseason. John Calipari, to his credit, responding to those fans. And now what we see is exactly what we saw in Rupp Arena on Saturday, a team that is really deep, really talented, and good enough to win it all. And when I look about it, at it, when I look at it in the bigger picture, again, it goes back to what I just said a minute ago. The coverage of most college sports relative to the fans is negative. In other words, it's a bunch of people that don't cover college sports, that don't watch on a day-in, day-out basis, that don't know the nuance of all this. They're, they're always critical of college sports fans, right? I'll give you a few examples just to kind of contextualize all this. First of all, just look at how Coach O was covered a few weeks ago when he got fired at LSU. Uh, as soon as he gets fired, it immediately becomes, this guy just won a national championship two years ago. How could you possibly get rid of him? And then it's like, oh, wait, a couple things. One, there's the old win-loss record. Can't lose to, to, to Mississippi State at home if you're LSU. Can't lose, to, uh, can't lose to UCLA. Can't lose to Kentucky. You know, he was losing games he shouldn't lose. Uh, there's personal stuff going on that's bleeding into the football program, and we don't know exactly what's true and exactly what's not, and so I'm not going to speculate on rumors. But then beyond that, you could see that the foundation of the entire program was cracked. When you win a national championship in 2019 and you overhaul your staff completely twice in two years, it means that there's something wrong. But the way that Coach O was covered was mostly a shame on LSU fans, feel bad for Coach O. It's like, yeah, feel bad for the dude that's making $20 million a year to not coach football next year. Oh, by the way, it was the same with Dan Mullen at Florida. He just won the SEC East last year. Yeah, and they've basically lost every, every game since then that matters. And on top of that, the recruiting is plummeting. And yeah, you can bring back Dan Mullen and give him another two or three years, but there's no real reason to think that he's going to overhaul it. And I thought it was kind of the same with Kentucky basketball this time last year. When Kentucky's struggling, everyone immediately goes to, oh, it's COVID, oh, it's this, oh, it's that, unnormal offseason. And while I certainly think that played a role, I also think that there were some structural things within the Kentucky program that were starting to get sloppy, lazy, whatever. And John Calipari, as the head of the program, is the face of the program. He's responsible for that. He's responsible for how his teams are put together, how they play, his coaches on the coaching staff. And so when Kentucky fans got frustrated last year and they drew a line in the sand and they said enough is enough, Coach Cal, I give them credit for doing that. I don't think it was a negative, and I think it was a positive in a lot of ways because they said, look, Coach Cal, we love you. We love everything you've done for this program. But at the same time, let's also not forget you are the highest paid coach in college basketball, and you're not allowed to have a season like you just did. And so a credit to them, a credit to Coach Cal, and you look at this team now, and this team is a direct reflection of the frustration of fans at this time last year and the fact that the fans would not allow a season like last year to happen again. In terms of what has actually changed, look, I, I spent all offseason talking about it, but one, Kentucky shook up its coaching staff. I give 
John Calipari a ton of credit. A lot of guys that he had been with for years, um, you know, are no longer there. And some of them got other jobs and some of them got other opportunities. But one he brought in, as I talked about all summer, we don't need to rehash it here, but two of the most well-respected recruiters in all of college basketball, Chin Coleman and Orlando Antigua, who are both working at Illinois. Orlando Antigua was, of course, uh, a guy that was working, uh, you know, that worked with John Calipari during the glory years, the early part of the 2010s when Kentucky was operating at its highest level. Two, I also think, and this is a direct reflection of the fans, it was the style of play, it was the type of player that they were bringing in, and it goes back to recruiting. And again, I'm not blaming all the guys on the last staff. Part of this was on John Calipari because John Calipari has to have the final say on guys. But you start to look at some of the teams that were put together over the last couple years, they simply weren't good enough to win the national championship. And more importantly than that, they weren't really built in a way that really you know, reflected that, right? And so you go back to, say, the 2018 season. They make the Sweet 16. Kentucky loses in the Sweet 16. Well, you look at the team that was on the floor that year. I think somebody that's not a Kentucky fan would say, well, they had the number one recruiting class in the country. What was so bad about that team? Well, if you look at that recruiting class, they had a bunch of guys that didn't really fit together, that didn't really play together like a team. As a matter of fact, I would actually give John Calipari credit because you look at 2019 and specifically you look at 2020 when they won the SEC, I thought that was one of his best coaching jobs because you really only had two or three guys that you could really rely on on a day-to-day basis and it was about talent and it was about development. But again, then it goes back to last year where it all completely falls apart. And so Calipari shakes up his staff. He shakes up recruiting. He goes more to the transfer portal, which I give him credit for. I know it was kind of a weird confluence of events where it just so happens that you have uh, an older group of players that you now have access to that you had never had access to before. But at the same time, he kind of backed off the high school kids. He said, look, I love recruiting high school. I love recruiting one and done. We're the one and done school. But I didn't get a chance to see any of these kids over the last couple years. And so because of it, I need to step back, I need to change what I'm doing, and I need to focus on the transfer portal. Well, what do you have now? You have Oscar Shibway, maybe the National Player of the Year. You have Severe Wheeler, probably an all-SEC point guard. You have, obviously, Kellen Grady, probably an all-SEC first-team caliber player. And it speaks to the other important thing that the fans basically bullied John Calipari into, which was changing the style of play. You go back to last year, Kentucky can't handle the ball, they can't shoot, they can't do the fundamental things that you need to win, and you see programs like Alabama at the time, like Arkansas at the time, like Gonzaga, like Baylor passing you by playing kind of a modern version of basketball, which is about shooting, scoring, spacing, whatever. Fast forward to Saturday, 11 of 18 from three. As a team, Kentucky shoots almost 37% from three, and again, this team looks completely different. And so look, in the bigger picture, I don't know what this all means. Don't know if Kentucky's going to win a national championship this year, because I don't think anybody knows. But what I do think is, I think they're one of the few teams that are in better position than most to make a deep run. I've said it all along. I've said it for the last three, four, five weeks. I don't think there is one best team in college basketball. People have been trying to tell me for a month and a half that Baylor is definitively... Baylor just lost two games in a row at home, okay? Don't tell me that Baylor is incredible. Don't tell me that Duke's unbeatable when they just lost to Miami. Don't tell me that whatever. So again, is Kentucky one of those teams? Yes. And it's a direct reflection of last year and John Calipari. And again, we'll see what happens in the bigger picture. I don't know if his recruiting is going to fundamentally change. I know he signed a lot of high school players this year, but I just bring it up to very simply say credit to the fans, right? Because at the end of the day, um, you know, we could, you could point to a lot of different things, 
but I don't think if the fans didn't put pressure on John Calipari the way that they did, if they didn't say, hey, look, we're not accepting anything other than the best from this team and this program, and we're not accepting anything other than the best from our $8 million a year head coach, I don't know if we'd be in this position, but as I said, the position right now is Kentucky's good enough to win a national championship, I believe, and I believe that's a direct reflection of their fans. You know who's not winning the national championship? Let's switch gears. You know who's not winning the national championship? Uh, just spent a lot of time talking about Kentucky, but there's two teams that Kentucky fans have a ton of interest in that I just don't think are very good right now. And they both took bad losses on Saturday, one of which I'm not really going to spend much time talking about, and that's the Memphis Tigers. Memphis takes a really bad loss to East Carolina at home, and I feel like I'm kind of just done talking Memphis basketball, right? Uh, I talked Memphis the year Penny Hardaway got hired. I talked about him uh, last season. I talked about him in the offseason when they signed Imani Bates and Jalen Duran. I talked about him during the regular season. I talked about him when they beat Alabama, and at this point, I don't think there's anything else to say. I don't think there's anything else to say. I don't think there's anything else to add, but that was a very interesting loss for Memphis. But at this point, there's nothing for me to add that I haven't said already. There is, however, one other team that is certainly of the interest of Kentucky fans that I do want to talk about. That is the Louisville Cardinals. Because on Saturday, Louisville took one of the worst losses in recent memory. And in year four, Chris Mack's program is going in the wrong direction really quick. There is obviously off-the-court drama based on what happened in the offseason with Dino Gaudio. And I'm starting to wonder, is the Chris Mack era about to come to a screeching halt? Does Chris Mack even want to coach at Louisville anymore? So let's talk about it. Let's discuss. Let's debate. And before we get into all of it, I do want to say one quick thing that I always have to say whenever I talk about Louisville. No, I don't hate Louisville. Every time I talk about Louisville, Louisville fans, oh, you just hate us. You hate that. And for people who don't understand why, uh, several years ago, I wrote a book about Kentucky basketball. Um, and so ever since then, every time I talk about Louisville, oh, you just hate us. You don't know what you're talking about, Taurus. Screw you. You hate the Cardinals, whatever. To be clear, I don't really hate the Cardinals. As a matter of fact, I take it a step further. In my limited interactions, and I don't claim to know the guy well, I don't know if he even knows who I, if I was walking past him in the street, I don't think he'd know who I was. But in my limited interactions, I've actually really enjoyed being around Chris Mack. Um, I obviously work for Fox. Fox has a relationship with the Big East. When he was at Xavier, we had a couple run-ins. Really nice guy. He came on this podcast after his first year at Louisville. Really nice guy. Took time out. Enjoyed the conversation with him. But at the same time, my job is to talk about the big topics that you guys care about. This is a huge topic, especially if the Louisville job opens later this year. And he's not doing a very good job right now. And so I'm not going to apologize. I'm not going to talk about it. But let's talk about what actually happened. And let's talk about why I'm talking about Louisville in the first place. And the reason why is pretty straightforward. On Saturday afternoon... Louisville went to play Pitt in a pretty nondescript ACC game. And Louisville lost that game 65-53 to, to the Pitt Panthers. Here's the problem. Pitt came into this game at 6-10 overall and 1-4 in the ACC, which sounds really bad, okay? And if you're Louisville, you can't lose to teams that are 6-10 and 1-4 in the ACC. But it wasn't just bad, it gets worse. First off, statistically, you can argue this is by far the, the worst loss of the Chris Mack era and one of the worst losses in recent Louisville history. That's not my opinion. Here's a fact. Uh, Jeff Greer, former Louisville beat writer, tweeted this out. And you guys know I don't love to use analytics and numbers and data to prove my point, but I think in this case it matters. Jeff Greer tweeted out, Pittsburgh ranked 177th in Ken Palm's efficiency rankings. Ken Palm is a famous college basketball database that ranks all sorts of things. 
Pittsburgh ranked 177th in Ken Palm's efficiency rankings, is the second lowest rated team in 20 years of Ken Palm's existence to beat Louisville. East Carolina was ranked 183 when they beat the Cardinals on January 16th, 2002. And so Jeff Greer brings this up to say, this was statistically the worst loss for Louisville in 20 years. And here is where you're concerned if you're a Louisville fan. It continues a trend of pretty much stinking this year and pretty much stinking and pretty much the entire Chris Mack era going in the wrong direction. And so let's talk a little bit about that. Because in terms of this year, Louisville's terrible. And if you want to know why I'd ever talk about them, it's because they stink. With the loss on Saturday, they're now 10-7 and overall. And look at some of these losses for Louisville. They lost to Furman early in the year, and Chris Mack was suspended for that game, so I don't know how much you could put on him. And Furman is really not a terrible program overall. Uh, right now, Furman is struggling, but they've been a good program in the last two, three years. Chris Mack wasn't at that game. Maybe it's not that bad. Just one problem. They get smoked by Michigan State in the Big Ten ACC Challenge. Okay, that one's not bad. Then they lose to DePaul. Well, maybe DePaul is better than we realize. No, they're not. Then, what has happened the last few weeks? First of all, you take a loss at Western Kentucky. As a Louisville head coach, you can't lose to Western Kentucky. I know it's on the road. I know it's this. I know it's a weird time. There was obviously the tornado situation. I'm not making light of a very serious situation. But as the Louisville head coach, you can't lose to Western Kentucky. Then you lose to Florida State. Okay, Florida State, whatever. Then you lose to NC State, who right now is 9-9. And then you lose to Pitt. And so you're 10-7. and But oh, by the way, as we record here, you've lost to Furman, Western Kentucky, a 9-9 NC State team, and a Pitt team, which statistically is the worst loss in 20 years. So clearly this thing is going in the wrong direction. That is why I would be concerned if I was Chris Mack about my future at Louisville. It reminds me a lot. Remember I just talked a minute ago about Dan Mullen, about how some of the media couldn't really understand why is Dan Mullen on the hot seat? It's because everything is going in the wrong direction right now, and there's nothing really to sell as, as a positive. As a matter of fact, if you look at the bigger picture of the Chris Mack era, this thing is a torp this thing is torpedoing in the wrong direction, no doubt about it. Year one, Chris Mack takes over, takes over, has a bunch of Rick Patino players, and I know there was a year with David Padgett in between, but Louisville goes 20 and 14, makes the NCAA tournament. Okay, year one, it's a rebuild, whatever, no big deal. You make the NCAA tournament, you lose in round one, ironically, to Richard Patino in Minnesota, which probably wasn't very good. Then year two, you're actually really good, but again. It's mostly Rick Pitino's players, and that was the year the NCAA tournament was canceled, unfortunately. And if you, you do feel bad for Chris Mack in that regard because if he makes a Sweet 16, if he makes an Elite Eight, if he makes a Final Four, it gives him more runway this season. Unfortunately, the NCAA tournament is canceled. What happens last year? Louisville finishes 13-7. and seven. Louisville misses the NCAA tournament. And now you have a second year in a row where things are going in the wrong direction. You're now 10-7. and seven. You've lost to two of the worst teams in the ACC. That doesn't include you, because now you have to be considered one of the worst teams in the ACC. You've lost to two of the worst teams in the ACC, and there's no real reason to think it's going to get better, right? There's no great recruiting class coming. And beyond that, what I would also say is this. Chris Mack, unfortunately, is kind of out of excuses, right? Because this, again, and I use all these parallels from other coaching situations, but it's kind of like the Coach O thing. Chris Mack changed up his coaching staff in the offseason. Well, now you have all your own players. You have a second round of coaching hires, and it's still not working. And so if you're Chris Mack, I don't know what the solution to this situation is. You've already changed your coaching staff. Um, you know, you had off-the-court issues with Dino Gaudio, which embarrassed the university. And oh, by the way, beyond that, what I would also say is this. 
There's no reason for optimism in recruiting. What is the quick fix in the offseason? You can't change the coaching staff. You just did it. Uh, recruiting, there's no help on the way. Beyond that, the guys that you brought in that were supposed to help really haven't. Uh, Samuel Williamson, and I hate to criticize individual players, but was a McDonald's All-American. He hasn't really worked out. They had another high-profile player named Aiden Agahan who came in, now has transferred to Grand Canyon. So you brought in good players, and you either didn't develop them or you misevaluated or whatever. And again, I'm not criticizing individual players. Um, you tried to hit the transfer portal last last offseason. This is the result of it. You're 10-7. and seven. There's no real recruiting class coming in. You're losing to the best teams in the ACC, and so I don't know what the answer is. Now, look, obviously, over these next few weeks, could Chris Mack turn things around and all that? And all? Yeah, of course he could, but you are what your record says you are, and right now, Chris Mack is 10-7, and seven. and beyond that, it's not like in the ACC there's a ton of big games that you can win to win over the fan base. Right now, the ACC is projecting like it might be a two to three bid league uh, with, with Duke playing really well, Miami playing pretty well, North Carolina is kind of okay, but outside, there's just not a lot of wins. And so if you're Chris Mack, I think, uh, you know, I, I just think this thing is trending in the wrong direction in a hurry. I know right now there's some weird administrative stuff at Louisville, but I would also have to ask, I don't even know if Chris Mack wants to stay at Louisville at this point after everything he's been through, the situation with Dino Gaudio, the struggles, the fan base, the this, the that. Uh, but this is a story worth monitoring. Because obviously, if Louisville were to open, I think two things happen. One, uh, it's probably the best job available if Louisville were to open. It still is a great job for all of whatever criticism that I've given of Louisville through the years. It's probably one of the seven or eight best jobs in college basketball. You essentially play in an NBA arena. You're essentially in, you know, in an NBA pro market. You are that market's professional team. And I do think it's a great job. I also think, by the way, and we could talk about candidates if it ever opens up, I do think, by the way, it also leads to an interesting trickle-down effect of does Chris Mack end up somewhere else because I think he'd be a really good coach, but maybe this whole Louisville thing hasn't worked out. The bottom line is I could go on and on and on. At the end of the day, just something to monitor because this Louisville thing is getting uglier and uglier and uglier by the day. Louisville is losing games that they should never lose to. You should never lose to DePaul if you're Louisville. You should never lose to Western Kentucky if you're Louisville. You should never lose to a 6-10 pit team if you're Louisville. It appears to be getting worse, and we're going to have to monitor this Chris Mack situation because I think there's a good chance that that job could be opening up this offseason. All right, a couple other results from college basketball. Then we'll take a quick break, get to my boy Jim Mora. But uh, a couple results, first of all, Shout out to them Hogs, the Arkansas Razorbacks. Uh, Eric Musselman, for people who did not see, he actually hurt his shoulder about a month ago in practice. I think he was taking a charge in practice and tore his labrum. Had to have surgery. Eric Musselman was not available for Arkansas's game. They go on the road and beat LSU. Um, and, and what I would say from both teams' perspective, I'm not going to overreact to this. I'm not going to say that it's this incredible win. It's an incredible win for Arkansas, but I'm not saying that it changes their, their entire season. What I would also say is this is usually the time that an Eric Musselman team starts to gel. This was around the time that last year that uh, this team kind of put it all together on their way to an Elite Eight. Um, but, you know, it, it could have just been a game where they caught LSU at the right time. LSU was down several key players. Their starting point guard, Xavier Pinson's out a few games with a knee thing. They played really well at Florida on Wednesday night. This was maybe the bounce back game where they kind of had the adrenaline of playing without him and were playing for Xavier and all that good stuff. Then, of course, you lose to Arkansas. So interesting to watch Arkansas. They needed a signature win. They got their signature win. Uh, but we will see what happens with this program going forward. Actually, a pretty manageable schedule for Arkansas for most of January. Then February, it gets much, much, much tougher. But for Arkansas, their next two games are at home in SEC play. South Carolina 
on Tuesday night and Texas A&M over the weekend. The other result that kind of caught my eye, two results really, one, uh, Kansas. Kansas destroyed West Virginia. Kansas is my preseason national championship pick. Caw, caw, caw. Sorry, it's not as good as the dog bark, but uh, my Georgia dog bark. How about my dogs? Okay, um, let's get out of here. Kansas looked awesome against West Virginia. That is something worth keeping an eye on. Also beyond that, I would say Sunday. Villanova absolutely destroyed Butler. Villanova's playing some really good basketball right now. They've beaten Xavier twice in the last probably about three weeks. I think Xavier's probably a legitimate top 20 team. Uh, they beat Butler on Sunday, 82-42. to 42, So Villanova is cruising. All right, I think that's it for what I'm doing here on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. And what I want to do now, I want to take a quick break, and I want to welcome in UConn head football coach Jim Mora. Okay, so Jim Mora... Really excited to have him. First of all, as I said, as I said, for some reason, the audio on my interview did not come out well on my end. You could still hear Coach Moore loud and clear. He's never sounded better. Don't know why, but just be prepared. My audio, my questions, they're kind of quiet, quiet, quiet. I don't, I don't really know why, but they were. So my interview with Jim Moore is coming up, but just be aware that for some reason, the audio is not great. But with that said, I think it's time for me to get out of here. I want to thank you guys for listening to today's episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. If you're not subscribed, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you subscribe. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. If you have any questions for me about this show, I got, I got a few good questions in DM the last few weeks. Maybe I'll go ahead and share those. Uh, we'll do a mailbag episode at some point. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. But with that said, that is all for my segment of today's show. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. Shout out to my boy Mark Schlissel. Former U Michigan school president. Let's get to head coach Jim Mora. And again, I do apologize about the audio quality of the Jim Mora interview on my end. Again, Coach Mora, you can hear loud and clear. But here is the new head coach of the UConn Huskies football program, Jim Mora. All right, joining me via Zoom. The new, I don't know if I can call you new, you've been there about two, two and a half months now, the new head coach of my alma mater, University of Connecticut, UConn Huskies football. Coach Jim Mora is joining me. Coach, uh, you're insanely busy like every first year head coach is at this time. I truly appreciate you making a few minutes to chat with me. How you doing? I'm doing great. And it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Exciting. Well, I'm excited to talk with you. First of all, I would just ask that. I mean, you're now, I guess, eight, nine, ten weeks into the process. Uh, I think most of the staff is done. A good chunk of the, the first recruiting class for 2022 is done. How has this, you know, eight, 10, 12 weeks been in Connecticut? I know it's been a whirlwind. Are you finally starting to get your bearings? Do you know your way to the office? All, all that good stuff? <laughs> Yeah, I, I figured it out pretty quickly here. It's a uh, it's a really great community. It's an amazing campus. We've just got, I think they're world class facilities. I just actually hired a uh, 
a young man from LSU. And, you know, you think of the SEC and you think of the, you know, the biggest and the best. And he walked through this facility and he said, I'm just going to tell you right now, this facility is better than most of the SEC facilities. Now we, we're dressing it up and modernizing it, but it's unbelievable. This campus is great. And uh, it's in terms of finding my way to campus, they put me in the, I'm living in the, uh, the, the president's house. Oh, wow. Uh, the president moved out oh, and he okay. moved me in. And yeah, not with the president. Okay, that was gonna say, yeah. I was gonna yeah, say, but, I know you're probably getting up early to go to the office. I was afraid he might tiptoe and the floor might creak or something like that. But as long <laughs> as he's not living there, I guess that's okay. Uh, no, so it's fantastic. But we've hired, uh, you know, really all of our staff. We've got a position in recruiting and one in coaching, but they're, you know, they're not necessarily things that are priorities right now. It's just about recruiting. You know, we're kind of in that second cycle now. This week, we're able to have um, early, early admission guys, mid-year guys in. So we've got some transfers coming in. Two just left. We just got two commitments. Can't tell you who they are. Oh, but, uh, yeah, we're doing pretty well. And uh, just kind of all learning how to work and live with each other. It's been, it's been really invigorating, really inspiring, and really exciting. That's fantastic. And you know what you just said, I want to, I want to hit on something because, you know, me being kind of in the quote unquote national media, but having gone to UConn and, and the facility that you're sitting in now was literally being built when I was there. Uh, look, we all know the, the program hasn't had a ton of on the field success the last, you know, half decade or so. But one thing I kept saying when the job did open up is the win-loss record isn't reflective of the commitment of the school, of the fan base, of whatever. And, you know, you were probably a little bit insulated from it, but there were people saying, oh, they have to drop to FCS and they'll never win. And I said, look, I'm not saying it's Bama. I'm not saying it's LSU, as you said, or you didn't say that, but, you know, you had a guy, you have you guys from LSU. The point I'm trying to make is, have you at all been surprised by, you know, we know UConn for basketball, for, for non-Olympic uh, you know, sports. Are you surprised? by the dedication and commitment to football, because again, that was something I was saying all throughout the process that I don't know who they're going to get, but this job is probably a little bit better than most people realize. I think it's a lot better than people perceive it to be from outside of this area. Uh, I had a little bit of insight because, you know, I'd been at ESPN for three years. And so I'd made a ton of trips back here. I'd been on campus. Uh, I'd been to the facility. Uh, I'd seen the team play. Uh, Lou Spanos, who took over as an interim head coach and is now the defensive coordinator for me, uh, he and I go way, way back. So I had some insight into the program. Uh, we worked together at UCLA. Lou and I did as well. So, you know, I had some insight, but I have been, I, I'm not going to say surprised, but overly impressed by the support. And we talk about starting with the athletic director, David Benedict, and his commitment to football. Uh, to the overall campus community and the students, um, to our president, Dr. Andy, you know, who just wants to see us be successful on and off the field, even to the governor. Now, I've met with the governor now three times. You know, wow. when, you, when, the, when the governor of the state is saying, hey, what do you need? You know, how can we help? Um, what people don't really understand that aren't from this area is that, you know, Connecticut doesn't have any professional football team, any professional basketball baseball. So UConn and our teams, they are the, they are the teams of the state. We are their professional teams. So people want to get on board and they want to support. What we have to do is we have to give them something that excites them and something that they're, 
they're excited to come and watch and support because I know everyone in this state is anxious to see good football played at the rent. And then, so our charge is to, is to give them that. And we're going to create this together, you know, our fan base and our staff and our players and our university. And it's going to be really fun to watch it grow. What are those, those first steps? I mean, obviously you've hired a staff, you've identified, I think 15, 18 kids that were brought in for this first cycle. What are those first steps? Because, you know, you've been there a while now, but this is still the very beginning stages. And, uh, you know, I know you want to be there for a very long time. So, so how do you get this thing started going in the right direction? Well, Aaron, it's, you said it. It's a, number one, you got to hire the, the right men and, and women to populate your staff, people with the same vision that, that, uh, that I have, that we all share, creating the right culture, saying the right things to each other, uh, promoting our brand, being committed to our kids, all those types of things. And then it's, it's bringing in the right type of player. You know, not just great players, but great men that are going to represent your university, our university. They're going to play good football. They're going to be, you know, positive members of the community that are winners, that love to compete, um, that have the competitive greatness, that, uh, uh, you know, want to be a part of, of building something special. Uh, and so those are the two main components right there. And, and that's an ongoing process with recruiting, you know, building our brand um, selling our vision, having people buy into it. Uh, and then, you know, to me, it's just being active in our community. You know, I, I think that it's so necessary that I'm out the high schools and at events and, you know, going to the food bank with the governor and, and things like that, where people see that the commitment goes both ways. If they, you know, we're going to ask people to commit to UConn football and we have to commit to them. So it's just, it's a lot of fun. I tell you what I said earlier, I'm just really invigorated and inspired by it it's been a, a blast and another thing he says yeah I do want to be here a long time you know I do want to build this thing up I don't want people thinking about UConn dropping to the F FCS I want to think you know want them thinking about us being a power five you know that's our goal we're aiming you know you said Alabama and LSU you know we have to think big we have to dream big um, we have to plan big and we have to understand there's a process for getting there, but we're, we're going to every day, we're going to aim to be the very best in the country at everything we do. Yeah, you mentioned being out in the community, going to high schools. And one thing that kind of stood out to me, um, it seemed like I think the first week, two, you're on the job. Um, you know, you were at high school, you know, state championship games, semifinals, all that good stuff. And, you know, I got to say, as, as a former, um, you know, high school player in Connecticut, now I wasn't the kind of player that you would recruit. Uh, but, you know, I, I was more the Rudy five foot, nothing, a hundred, nothing, you know, no athletic ability, <laughs> but you know, what have you seen from Connecticut high school? Because again, I'm, I'm a little biased. I, I mean, one thing I, no one's ever accused me of is not being biased, but I've always thought there's been talent in Connecticut. Again, the, the population dense, you know, is it Georgia, whatever, who cares? But I've always thought the talent was pretty good underutilized and you're seeing players, uh, Tyler Van Dyke at Miami, T Will Levis at Kentucky. I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, the kid from uh, Drew Pine from Notre Dame. The point I'm trying to make is there are good players. It might not be as well known. So what have you seen from Connecticut high school football? Uh, because again, that was one thing that jumped out to me from a distance was it, it seemed like you, you had boots on the ground at as many games and schools as you could possibly get to. I think if you're going to be successful, you have to, you know, kind of put a fence around your own state and make sure those good players you're talking about being at other schools are not at other schools, that they're at UConn. And that process to start, process starts, you know, immediately 
when you identify these young men, building a relationship with them and with their coaches, first thing you have to do is build a relationship with the coaches where they feel that they can trust you and that if they do send their kid to your school, that you're going to take care of them and you're going to develop them and you're going to help them become, you know, good men and, uh, and great football players. And so the only way you do that is you start, you know, getting out in the community and, and going to the high schools. And it was just important for me to, to do that because there are talented players in this state at the high school level, many, many. And I don't want to hear, you know, next time you and I talk, you talk about four players that are from Connecticut that are playing somewhere else. They should all want to be part of the Yukon community. They should grow up feeling like the best thing for me is to go to Yukon. And so we're trying to do that. The thing that's really surprised me, and I knew there was talent here in the high school level, was the, uh, the prep schools. You know, there's a real source of talent at the prep school level. Being a, more of a West Coast-oriented person, I'm used to the junior college. And the junior college sometimes has, you know, real or imagined a stigma attached to it. Well, he's a JC kid. You know, he couldn't qualify or, you know, he had issues. And that's not always true. But with the prep schools, you're getting kids that are aiming at the Ivies, that are getting a year to develop, that their clock hasn't started. Um, they're getting really good coaching. And so, you know, they're Connecticut prep schools, but they're kids from all over the country. And, you know, we treat them as if they're Connecticut kids, you know, because we're recruiting them out of Connecticut. So I think between the high schools and the prep schools, there's a huge population of really talented and really good young men that'll help us win. More you know, before we get out of here. I mean, one obviously, college football has changed a lot since you were last involved. Um, the portal. I mean, you know, it, it's funny because there's there's a lot of um, you know, there's a lot of coaches I think that are, are maybe a little frustrated in, in some regards. But I think for you, and it's no disrespect to anybody that was in the previous program or from the previous staff, but um, you know, I know you've been aggressive. Like you said, there may be a few guys that are committed that we don't know about yet that you can't talk about, but. Has it been a tool? How much of a tool has it been for you? Because again, and I know you've talked about this in other interviews, but with your NFL background, it's kind of a equivalent of a, of a free agency where a, an older player, more experienced player, you have more film on him. Um, and, you know, you know a little bit more about him as opposed to an 18 year old kid that, you know, it might be two or three years before he can play. Well, it's really interesting. The portal, it's like the wild, wild west and it changes every day. You know, yeah. while we're sitting here doing this, you know, there's going to be five or six kids that enter the portal. So we always have to be on top of it. Hopefully we have a connection to these kids, but you're right. We get to watch them play college football. You know, we can watch their film and see them play against uh, competition that we understand better than we would at the high school level. They're, they're less of a projection, more of a certainty. Uh, we had a kid commit last night, well, two committed yesterday, actually, that are portal guys. And what's really interesting is that school starts here on Tuesday, next week. <laughs> so they're here. They just left, they're going home, they're getting their stuff and they're coming like right back, you nice. know, to start school. And so we've got, uh, we've got four or five, actually we got six transfers coming in between today and Sunday that I think will, you know, I think several of them will commit and they'll have to go home, get their stuff and be back here for school <laughs> on Tuesday. So it's just this, it's this, the change is constant and you really have to stay up with it and you have to be flexible. And it, it not only stresses out the staff, but it stresses your university because all of a sudden you're asking your admissions people and your compliance and your academic people to do things that they're not used to doing. But you're able to improve your team very, very quickly. I think the thing you have to be careful about is 
while you, you know more about them as football players, you don't necessarily know as much about them as people because you haven't been recruiting them for three or four years. And uh, so you have to be careful that you're not bringing in, that, let's say this in a positive way, that you're bringing in the right type of men that you want to fill your locker room with. You're not bringing in guys that are going to, that are going to negatively affect your program, but they're going to add to it. And so there's, there's some challenges there, but it's, it's a good way to build, build quickly. Now, going forward, like we don't want to be a renegade program. You know, I want, to, I want to treat it like an NFL team would, which is we're going to build through the draft in the NFL, which means we're going to build through recruiting. We're going to supplement through free agency in the NFL, which means we're going to supplement through the transfer portal. You know, certain needs that start to present themselves, we'll attack the portal to find that. But we want to build this program, you know, through our recruiting of high school players. Very good. Two quick questions. We'll get you out of here. The first one, very random, and you might not even remember this, but I was asking some people I know at UCLA uh, about, you know, working with you, all that good stuff. And I talked to a basketball coach that said for a very brief window, you guys dual recruited Jalen Suggs out of Minnesota. Do you remember anything about Jalen Suggs, the, the football player? We talk a lot of basketball on this show and I remember, and my buddy said, you know, I went over to Coach Mora. I said, this kid's really good in football. He's now obviously a lottery pick playing in the NBA. Do you remember anything about that? I remember the athleticism. And I remember, <laughs> I remember him saying he wasn't interested. Oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> no. No, no I, didn't, I, didn't, or, or, I didn't know that he was uh, a lottery pick now. That's, that's impressive. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, Did you not see the shot he had at Gonzaga last year? No, nah, I, I I didn't watch. It. Listen, I love it. I love the last it. three years. I've been, well, I, the last few years, you know, I was uh, I wasn't really focused on football. I was during the season. I was working at ESPN, but when it wasn't football season, I was living in Sun Valley, Idaho. So I was usually either fly fishing, oh, mountain biking, hiking, skiing, skinning, snowshoeing. I was you know oh, I was man. usually outside doing something. Not, I wasn't watching a lot of TV. But now, uh, you know, I, look, I I love going to the UConn basketball games. You know, we have a great women's team. We had a great men's team. We had a huge win last night against St. John's in overtime. Exciting. You know, you go into Gamble. It's pretty awesome. we got to figure out a way to create that environment down at the rent. Well, that's going to be my last question. I, I think I might have told you this through our correspondence, but my stepdad, my mom, season ticket holders, they've been through – some tough seasons. We're not here to talk about the past. You know, we're like, we don't talk about the past here, but um, they have obviously renewed. They're very excited. Uh, you know, what kind of team uh, do you expect for them to see when you guys run through the tunnel for the first time? And how excited should they be for that first Saturday in uh, late August, early September? Well, I think they should be excited. You know, I think that there's a process. Uh, what, I, what I envision them seeing, um, what I intend for them to see is a team of, uh, of young men and coaches that are disciplined, that, that play with a lot of toughness, that are highly competitive, uh, that, that know how to handle adversity and success in a game, play through it, uh, that, that win a lot of football games, but just as importantly, make them proud of their team, make them excited to renew their season tickets you know, make them anxious on a Saturday to get to the rent and have a great time out at those great tailgates, but say, hey, listen, 
you know, kickoffs in 10 minutes. Let's get in our seats. So when those, when those young men run out of the tunnel, they see this, this stadium full. And uh, I, I just really want to make sure that everyone always feels hope, you know, that they don't, they don't feel like uh, renewing their season tickets is going to lead to despair, but it's going to lead to hope and anxiety. Man, I can't wait to watch these guys line up again. You know, what's about to happen? This is going to be awesome. You know, I want that kind of energy. Very good. Head coach Jim Mora, uh, by the way, just, just as, as proof, uh, I do have my UConn hat here. I was trying to be somewhat professional, uh, but man, I, I, again, I know how busy you are. I mean, you're getting commitments literally as we speak, I'm taking you away from the portal. There's guys in there right now that you don't even know about. Hey, so let me tell you something. I got, uh, what do you got? What time is it? It's 10 24 here. Right. I got, uh, I got breakfast at 10 50 with, a. I can't tell you it is. Okay. Okay. Pretty big time transfer. If he commits, you'll hear about it. Okay. All right. Well, listen. Uh, might even be from might even be from that area you're in right now. So oh, yeah, you're gonna have uh Google Google will be uh burning in Connecticut here over the next uh 24 hours. So <laughs> Coach Moore, we appreciate the time, man. Thank you. Uh and I look forward to one seeing the product on the field. Hopefully we can do this again sometime in the summer when things slow down a little bit. But sure. again, I cannot thank you enough for your time. So, all right, man. Thanks for having me on and just let me know when you want to do it again. It was fun. All right. Thank you, Coach. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.